0: So, my name is Steve Sartori. I am the Director of Life and Leadership Coaching, for CMDA. Uh, probably most of you know CMDA around here, Christian Medical and Dental Associations. And uh, I started doing coaching about two and a half years ago. I was at a transition in life. And uh, after 30 years of clinical practice as a primary care physician, a family doc in southeastern Kentucky, uh, I decided to uh, make a change. And that led me to CMDA, where I'd served for many years on their board and in a variety of volunteer positions. So now I direct the Life and Leadership Coaching Program along with two of my colleagues, Ann Sen and Ken Jones. And it's really been a lot of fun. So... uh, You're going to learn a little bit today about some of the things we deal with when we work with doctors around the country who are troubled by burnout, who are troubled by discouragement, who have all kinds of... that thing in and out, isn't it? Hmm. Well, let's see. I think it's... uh, I don't know what the deal is, but if I keep my chin up like this, it sounds like it might work better. So uh, I have to be a little bit careful here. Uh, so anyway, uh, you're here probably because you either have experienced burnout or you know someone who's experienced burnout or you're looking to go to the mission field and you know you've got to prepare and be ready so that you don't burn out. Uh, burnout attracts a lot of attention these days. We know that, uh, that burnout is very popular. You can't pick up a medical journal. Without reading about burnout, no matter what specialty you're in, you're going to read about burnout. It's prevalent. Uh, It's it's been called a public health crisis by Dr. Arthur Kaplan, who's a bioethicist at NYU. Uh, People are now focusing on the quadruple aim, which means we're not just focusing on patient cost and patient quality of care, and patient experience, but now the physician experience is that fourth ingredient that is so critically important in measuring our health system, because unsatisfied doctors lead to all kinds of trouble in the healthcare environment. So we're going to dig into some of that. Now, you know, I, I can identify with some of you because I'm medical, I'm a doctor, Uh, I have encountered a variety of hardships. I've lived long enough to have experienced all kinds of adversity. And I can guarantee you that if you live as long as I do, that you probably also will experience some adversity as well. Ninety percent of people in their lives will experience some kind of major trauma. Burnout is not necessarily a major trauma, but it is a form of trauma. And so for those of you in the room, if you've had a good life so far, cheer up, it'll get worse. Hang in there. You will encounter difficulty along life's way. So we want you to be prepared and resilience is one of the ways that we deal with that. I was advised to show a picture. I'm now a grandpa. As of three months ago, I'm a a grandpa. Wow, how did that happen? But my youngest daughter it just had our first uh, grandbaby and uh, so that's that's baby Jaden. Our oldest daughter is a full-time missionary in Swaziland. She's a nurse. Our younger daughter is also a nurse so we have a, a lot of experience with missions in the sense that we have a, a full-time missionary progeny. We've done short-term missions around the world in Kenya, Jamaica, Thailand and longitudinally in Romania for many many years. So, we have a fair amount of experience in short term missions, also in cross cultural situations in southeastern Kentucky, which actually is a domestic mission field. Uh, any of you who work in Appalachia or underserved communities, inner city, rural areas, recognize there are issues there that are also very similar to what we experience in overseas venues. So, if you're here for CME, and if you're a doctor or a healthcare professional and you need credits, We have to tell you what we're going to tell you, and then you have to evaluate afterwards whether we did what we told you we were going to do. So what we're planning to do is talk about burnout. We're going to define it. We're going to identify factors that help prevent it or manage it if it's already present. And we're going to talk about how it is that you can develop resilience so that you don't experience (coughs) burnout, or if you do experience burnout or begin to experience burnout, you'll be able to rapidly respond to it in a positive way. Burnout affects all kinds of professions. Medicine and medical doctors and healthcare professionals are not the only ones who are exposed to burnout. Anyone in a caring profession, people who deal with people, fire workers, firefighters, policemen, social workers there's a there's a lot of pressure in dealing with people taking on the problems of people compassion fatigue the kinds of things that lead to our emotional exhaustion but in medicine the statistics are are worse uh... in fact tate shenna at Mayo clinic uh... has been the main researcher as far as evaluating burnout in doctors and among physicians the rates have been dramatically increasing And we'll get to some of the reasons why we think that's true. But over 50% of doctors now experience symptomatology of burnout. Now, if you're a female, it's worse. If you're a frontline worker, primary care, general surgery, ER, ICU medicine, it's worse. It crosses all age groups. So medical students get burned out. Residents get burned out. First-time doctors in their first 10 years get burned out, second 10 years, third 10 years. Doctors get burned out at all stages of development. So it's not just the 50-year-old, fed-up-with-life doctor that experiences this. It's across the age spectrum. And what are the results of these burnout symptomatology? Well, we've seen it. When I talk with medical staffs, what happens? I see doctors, and I've been chief of staff at two hospitals, Doctors who exhibit disruptive behaviors. Doctors who throw things in the operating room. Doctors who yell and scream at nurses. Doctors who get addicted to opioids. Doctors who kill themselves. Suicide is much higher among physicians. And if you think you can escape that by going to the international global mission field, guess what? You won't. It'll probably even be potentially worse because now you're adding not only the pressures that you experience in medicine but now you're adding to it the pressures of cross cultural issues language issues church issues all kinds of other things that are only going to add to the potential trouble now we know that that stress hello that stress is a good thing to a point we know that a certain amount of stress helps us perform better you think of the heart. When it fills with blood and stretches, it makes the contractility better to a degree until you exceed on the Starling Curve and what happens? You develop heart failure. Same way with stress. We, d- we work and respond better and respond to stress, but as we move along the stress curve, there comes a point of diminishing return where actually our productivity declines. We become more anxious. We become have a lot more difficulty working and accomplishing things. Now, for those of you who are rapidly writing things down, boy, I appreciate that. You really value what I have to say. That's good. But this PDF is already uploaded to the website, so you can get all of these slides, so you can simply pay attention. You don't have to write anything down if you don't want to, although there will be a few things that aren't on the slides. So... We also seem to add to our our problem with stress by adding stress to our own lives. We take on all kinds of troubles. We add things to our lives that make our lives very complicated. We juggle balls, all kinds of balls in the air. And then what happens? We end up burned out. So what is burnout exactly? Well, if you look to the original description and the original triad of symptomatology developed by Christina Maslach she's a PhD psychologist at UC Berkeley she came up with this triad in 1976 this was not applicable necessarily to healthcare workers this is just generic burnout three things number 1 exhaustion emotional exhaustion number 2 depersonalization detachment, a sense of cynicism. You don't want to be involved with people anymore. And thirdly, a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. That says that what I do doesn't matter anymore. It's worthless. It's futile. I'm not making a difference in the world anymore. What good am I? I'm not helping anyone anymore. I call it the red zone. Reduced sense of personal accomplishment, emotional exhaustion, and depersonalization. She also calls it an erosion of the soul that's caused by a deterioration of values, spirit, dignity, and will. I find that an interesting definition, an erosion of the soul. And of course, it reminds me of Psalm 23, which says, He restores my soul. So, how do you determine if you're burned out? You probably know it already, but if not, let me tell you how you can figure it out. You could take an assessment. You know, coaches always have assessments. We've got ways to try to uncover who you are and what you're experiencing. The original burnout inventory developed by Christina Maslach, who defined burnout in 76. In 81, she came up with this burnout inventory, three sections, 22 questions, and you add up the scores and see if you're burned out. Regarding medical professionals, there's a couple of different assessments, and there's Lots more assessments out there, but one is called the Physician Wellbeing Index. It was developed by Shanna and colleagues at Mayo. Mayo has been a leader in physician satisfaction, physician well-being in the study and research and development of tools to deal with it. So the Physician Wellbeing Index, which is research proven to be effective at, uh, at assessing this. And then the AMA, the American Medical Association, actually has a division that studies physician satisfaction. And the people there... Uh, developed a thing called the Mini-Z Assessment. It's a 10 questionnaire, 10 questions on a 5-point scale. Now, some of these questions are things such as, I'm chronically tired, and uh, I can't seem to get my energy back. I can't recover. I'm emotionally drained. Work just drains me. I, I don't feel concerned about my patients. I don't care as much as I used to. I'm having trouble making decisions. Um, My work doesn't give me a deep sense of satisfaction. I don't think I can keep doing the job much longer. These are a sample. These are not exhaustive. These are just a sampling of some of the kinds of questions that you might see on a burnout assessment. So why do we get burned out? Well, number one is the field and the profession we chose. Medicine is a very high stress occupation. So the intrinsic nature of what we do in medicine is that it's high stress. High stress often contributes to burnout. It's complex and it's becoming incredibly more complex. Those of us who have been in practice for 20 years or 10 years or 30 years know that the practice of medicine today is very, very different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's much more complex. How many more medicines do we have? How many more diagnostic studies do we have? How many more laboratory tests do we have? How many more chemotherapeutic agents? How many biologic agents? Who ever heard of these things 20 and 30 years ago? Now we're filled with these kinds of things. We've also lost our autonomy. Doctors generally don't make great employees, but we're becoming employees. So we're selling our practices. We're joining hospitals. And that means... That we're now owned, which means when you're an employee, your employer tells you when to show up for work. They tell you how much you'll get paid. They tell you when you can take time off. They tell you when you can tie your shoes, practically. I mean, they tell you a lot of stuff. And doctors don't really respond that well. Doctors like to be in control. They like to be in control of their time. They like to be in control of their money. Uh, These are things that are dear to physicians. So when they sell out and yet employed by the hospital, it creates a lot of additional stress and tension. Another aspect of medicine that leads to uh, burnout and stress is what I call the non-clinical complexity. The things that we do that don't seem to matter in taking care of a patient, but they matter to someone else. They matter to a regulatory authority. They matter to the government. They matter to the state. They matter to our employer. They matter to our metrics and our data and all the things that are being measured about our patient outcomes and the things that we really don't care about other than the fact that we care for our patients and it's part of the things we take on in caring for our patients. We've got an alphabet soup of all kinds of regulatory things that take our attention. The average internal medicine resident now spends six hours in front of a computer screen every day, not with the patient, but in front of a computer screen. Go to your friendly family doctor or go to your optometrist or go to your healthcare provider and they're talking to you out of the back of their head sometimes, right? They're in front of a computer screen. You're behind them and they're talking to you and you're like, what did you say? Are you really paying attention to me? And we know the things that give joy to doctors and patients is face-to-face clinical contact. The very thing that is being taken away from us. Our patient visit times are deteriorating, they're decreasing, and our screen time is increasing. We live in a difficult legal environment. We have leadership challenges. We have administrators telling doctors what to do. That doesn't go over so well, uh, typically. And then if you go to the mission field, you have cross-cultural challenges on top of all of that. There's also some reasons that are intrinsic to who we are. Some of us are more prone toward burnout than others. Some of us are lone rangers, heroes. We could ride our horse all day long and never get tired. There are some of us that are like that and some of us, most of us, not like that. So doctors tend to be striving for excellence, perfectionists, compassionate. They tend to be competitive and sort of this rugged individualism and Wow, I worked 36 straight hours. I did seven ICU admissions. I mean, you wouldn't believe how hard I worked last night. Wow, match that, right? So we have this sort of attitude that says, bring it on, bring it on. I did 10 operations today. I did 20 endoscopy procedures today. We measure ourselves by our productivity. And in fact, that very aspect of our personalities will oftentimes come back to bite us. Uh, we oftentimes don't develop the kinds of relationships that are so protective for us in staying healthy. We have this social stunting during medical school. I mean, who of us going through medical school and residency, I mean, it's kind of a blur to me. I mean, I was on call every other night as a resident. I mean, that would be illegal, right, nowadays? I mean, and the guy I was working with said the only thing wrong with being on call every other night is you miss half the stuff, you know, so... (laughs) Here I, here I am working like a dog and I've got a wife and I've got a child and, and I'm loving it. I, I'm, I'm loving it. And, and after a while, you begin to realize, I can't keep doing this. I can do it for a season, but I, I can't keep doing that. On top of that, we live lifestyles that don't allow us to make the kinds of changes that are so critical when it comes to dealing with burnout. So we get ourselves in deep debt. We have overcommitted schedules. What do we do? Well, we try to fix things, right? Doctors are great at fixing things. So we try to fix things. So we ask our employer, or we, if we own our practice, try to fix things. So we change our workflow. We change our schedules. We do team-based care. We do scribes. We have people fill out our EMR for us. We go into direct primary care. We, We do a variety of things to try to escape some of the stressors in the environment of health care that help us the hospitals try to help us they develop wellness initiatives in fact the Joint Commission says it's mandatory that a hospital have a wellness a physician wellness committee not a committee that focuses on the disruptive or the impaired doctor but a committee that is proactive and preventive about developing strength and resilience in doctors so we have a healthy workforce to deal with in our hospitals And physician leadership is a key ingredient of physician satisfaction. Doctors respond to doctors better than they respond to administrators. So physician-led organizations with effective, engaged physician leadership tend to do better. What else do we do? Well, we can't always change the environment we work in, but there are some things that we have some authority to change. We can maybe work part-time. We can decrease our hours. Some doctors retire. We take non-clinical positions. We think, oh, if I just were working in Kenya or some other place, I wouldn't have to deal with all of this alphabet soup of government regulation. Guess what? You'll still have all kinds of stress and more. So don't think that you will escape the risk of burnout by going to the foreign field in fact, I dare say you may be actually more at risk by going to the foreign field. If you look at missionaries, missionaries the term of service and the retention of missionaries isn't that great. I mean, I think it's the last thing I saw is like maybe 10 years for a non-medical missionary and maybe half that for a medical missionary. So we know that healthcare has a greater risk than other missionary professions. So, if we can keep people on the field, it takes 250000 to $400,000 to send a family to the mission field for a few years. Think of the, of the risk that sending agencies have when there's not a successful plant or a successful deployment to the foreign field of a family going to serve in health care. There's a great deal of investment from donors. There's a great deal of investment in preparation. And if that family is unable to be sustained on the field and comes back, boy, that may not be, in fact, is probably not the best stewardship. So mission agencies are looking very intentionally at how is it that we can prepare the stewards that are going, the missionaries who are going, and how can we sustain them once they get to the field. The serenity prayer you're probably familiar with, grant me the serenity to be able to accept what I can't change, but the courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's an important part of how we respond to stress. What is it that we can change? What is it we need to accept? And what is it we need to really stand up and go for? And Victor Franco, who was a uh, psychiatrist, a Jewish psychiatrist in a concentration camp in World War II, said when we are no longer able to change a situation, then we've got to change ourselves. And resilience, what we're going to get into next is how is it that we ourselves, our being, what about us makes us more resilient? And if we're not resilient, what can we change to become more resilient? So what do you think of when you think of resilience? You think of people like Louis Zamperini, unbroken, this Olympic competitor who ended up on a a drifted sea, captured by the Japanese and placed in a prisoner of war camp and comes back and thrives and survives and and begins to tell his testimony and has a movie made about him, right, Unbroken. So you think of people like that. You think of Helen Keller, who at a very young age lost her sight, lost her hearing. She didn't just dry up and go away. This lady prospered. She worked hard with the help of Ann Sullivan, developed, and she's now a hero for many of us. Johnny Erickson Tata, who spoke at last year's CMDA National Convention, a diving accident as a late teen. And look what happened with her. Her ministry has impacted thousands, if not millions of people around the world as she has reached out to disabled people. She paints, she sings uh, an amazing testimony of resilience and the capacity to take adversity and convert it into something that God uses for good. We see communities that are resilient. We see... Communities struck by hurricanes. You think of New Orleans or Lumberton, North Carolina with the recent hurricane. You think of New York City after the Trade Tower accident and how they were able to come back in the terrorist attack. And you think of Chicago and London decimated by serious, terrible fires, rebuilt, great cities today. You think of Cubs fans. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how long have Cubs fans been waiting for a World Series victory? 108 years. That is a resilient fan base. Amazing. Kudos to all of you who are Cubs fans. I hope you don't have to wait that long again. Uh, But I was rooting for the Cubs. I was rooting for the Cubs as I stayed up so late until the rain delay. And then I said, I got to go to bed. I looked at my smartphone and I said, they're playing again. I went back downstairs and watched the end of the game. I mean Cubs fans, you think of our nation, you think of the United States, we've gone through Civil War, we've gone through Great Depression, we've gone through World War One. we've gone through World War 2 we've gone through all kinds of adversity, and yet our nation continues to be the most prosperous and the strongest nation on the planet. The real definition, or the technical definition, it has to do with physics, really, it's what, how does a material respond to stress, okay? If you take something and you exert a great deal of stress upon it, what happens to that material? Does it change? Is it able to continue to keep its shape? Uh, does it get distorted? Can it recover from this kind of stress and pressure? So the ability to return to your original shape. When you take that into the human experience, there's a few other kinds of definitions that might be a little more apropos. The ability to become strong, healthy, or successful after something bad. The ability to recover from disruptive change without being overwhelmed. And I like the last one here actually best of all. The ability to master change, thrive under pressure, and bounce back from setbacks. So it really has to do with how it is that we respond to stress. How is it that we respond to hardship, uh, difficulty, adversity, challenges and as I told you earlier you will experience those things and how we respond is an indicator of how resilient we are there are assessments just like for burnout we can also test how resilient you are there are a variety of assessments one of them is online at www.resiliencyquiz.com so if you go there you can take a little test of 20 questions And you can score yourself, and if you score 80 or better, you're pretty resilient. If you score 50 or less, you better start thinking about how to develop some more inner strength to prepare for the adversities of life. Some of the questions are things like, I'm usually optimistic. I see difficulties as temporary. I'm calm in the middle of a a crisis. I can tolerate high levels of ambiguity and uncertainty. I adapt quickly to new developments. I'm not judgmental about other people. I adapt to different personality styles, and I've made, been made stronger by difficulty. These are just a few of the kinds of questions that will test your resilience. The book about resilience—it's kind of the definitive book. It was a book written by two psychiatrists, one from Yale, one in New York at uh, Mount Sinai. They identified ten factors that they measured in people who, when they studied people like prisoners of war. They studied special forces, military trainees. They studied exemplary individuals who demonstrated resilience and came back from great duress or great stress. So they identified 10 factors, and for my purposes, I consolidated them into five. Number one, I can't remember 10 things. I can hardly remember five things. But I put them into five categories and kind of grouped some together, and we'll dig into some of these. One is optimism. That's a key factor in resilience two is courage three is relationships which includes two of the factors that they had which is social support and role models four is fitness that actually includes three of the factors that they included which has to do with physical fitness mental fitness and flexibility cognitive mental flexibility and then finally they identified religion and spirituality what I call faith which has to do with religion a moral compass, and meaning and purpose. Three of them that are wrapped, three factors wrapped up in that. Optimism does not mean that you simply test positive for being negative. Uh, Optimism really has to do with how do you interpret life? How do you look at life? You know, we've heard the expression, some people look at it like a glass half empty, some a glass half full. What's your perspective about life? Most of you could probably say, I'm an optimist or I'm a pessimist. How many in here would say I'm an optimist? How many would say I'm a pessimist? We have some honest people. Good. Well, it's probably about 50-50 across the board, but the reality is, as Christians, we need to develop that sense of optimism, and we have all kinds of reasons to be optimistic. Optimism does not mean you ignore reality. It means that you face reality, and in spite of that, you have a narrative about it that is generally positive, looking forward to the future. You have a positive narrative explanation. Positive emotions and optimism help you to resist disease. Did you know that? That if you're an optimist, it is proven you will resist disease better, you will live longer, and you'll have more creativity and more resourcefulness. And you'll recover from illness faster. So... When you end up in the hospital, it's a good thing to be an optimist, really, if you want a better health outcome. And of course, Proverbs 17.22 reminds us, a cheerful heart is good medicine. It's good medicine. So courage, the next uh, factor, is not really not having any fear. Uh, We think that courage is, well, I'm not afraid. The reality is you recognize that you could be fearful about something, but you face that fear. You are willing to not run away. You know, what do we do when we face something that's really frightening? We fight, flight, freeze, right? Well, the healthy thing is to face it. Face it realistically. Like John Wade said, it's not, it's, courage is being scared to death. But you saddle up anyway and you get on your horse. So courage says that we're able to overcome our fear. We're able to face our fear. You think of Bible stories, you think of David and Goliath, and when you read that story of David, the thing that strikes me is that... Is that me or is that... But anyway, you think of David and Goliath and you think of how he... It says he ran toward the giant. He ran toward Goliath. I'd be running the other way. He's running toward Goliath. It doesn't mean he doesn't understand that he might die... It just means that he had the courage to run toward him. I think of Ruth, who said, you know, I've been chosen for such a time as this. I will approach the king. And her words, if I die, I die. If I die, I die. That's courage. Relationships, this third factor of resilience, has to do with who are the people around us that help us. Doctors are typically oftentimes lone rangers we oftentimes get lonely. We don't have a lot of people around us. And the importance of family and friends and neighbors and colleagues and fellow believers and mentors and role models, these people in our lives become critical. When I end up in trouble, uh, who do I call upon? I call upon a variety of people. Like a week and a half ago when I had the most excruciating pain of my life and... I just I couldn't stand it. I couldn't even make my own diagnosis. You ever been a doctor and you can't make your own diagnosis? I mean, so what do I do? I call my neighbor, who's my friend and doctor and my wife, and they sit in the ER with me for 5 hours while they're trying to figure out what's going on with me. And after I get some narcotic and sleep for 18 hours and determine that I had a case of biliary colic, you know? I mean, these are the people you call upon when you end up in trouble. You go to your neighbor, you go to your friend, you go to your wife, you go to your family, you go to your church person. And I can think of several people I would call upon in a heartbeat and they would come to me, you know, and I would do the same for them. So surrounding yourself with people is important. Having good role models, people who have inspired you, people you, who you look up to, I remember when I was in 8th grade and we had a family doctor and I so admired Dr. Balder in my little town of 1,500 people in western Wisconsin and I said, I want to be, I want to be like Dr. Balder. When I grow up, I want to be like Dr. Balder. That was when I was in 8th grade and I never lost that sort of drive to be a doctor based upon my perspective of my one and only small town family doctor we think of Hebrews 12 after the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11 talking to us about the martyrs the great leaders of the faith who lost their lives for their faith and then it says in Hebrews 12:1, it says so, so now since we're surrounded we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses we're surrounded by great role models, right? so let us throw off anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us so, these people who have gone before, these role models, these exemplary people can motivate us to give us strength in our time of need. Fitness. Fitness is important. Physical fitness is important. Mental fitness is important. Spiritual fitness is important. So, this holistic approach to fitness. Some of us, uh, some people get really excited about being physically fit, but not really fit in other ways. So, I'm not talking just about physical fitness. Physical fitness is a good thing. The Bible even tells us that physical fitness is a good thing, but it also says it's not as good as spiritual fitness. It's not as good as training in godliness, because training in godliness is good not just for this world, but also for the world to come. So when we talk about fitness, we mean not just physical fitness. We talk about mental fitness. How is it that we keep our brains fit? Did you know one of the most important ways of keeping your brain fit fit? is sleeping. Did you know that? It is incredibly important to your brain. Now, when I was working uh, as a resident and early on in practice, I would oftentimes get three hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, six hours I was doing good. But, you know, I've realized that sleep really is more important than I gave it credit for. Your brain uses the majority of its capacity when you sleep. When you're awake... Your brain does not access all of the areas of your brain that you do when you sleep. So sleep is a way of detoxifying your brain. It's a way of using and exercising your brain. So, boy, live it up. Go to bed. Take a nap. Go, to, go sleep. It's healthy for you. It helps your mental flexibility. How we look at things is also very important. Uh, how we look at things mentally, how, how flexible are we? Are we really stuck in the way we look at things? Or are we creative in the ways that we can look at life? Can we consider other perspectives? Can we listen and learn from other people? Or do we know it all already? How teachable are we? How curious are we? How much do we learn from other people? It's a key point of mental fitness. And finally, the fifth factor, remember there's ten, but I've boiled them down to five, is this faith factor And we're going to drill down on this one because as Christians, this one is critically important. So, we think, what about our beliefs? What about our values? What about our worldview? What about our morality? What about the the compass that's in us, the conscience that's in us? How do these things direct our steps and build resilience? And how is it that our sense of calling or meaning or purpose or identity are so critical in, uh, in our spiritual fitness? So we're going to look at a few things related to spiritual fitness. And I'm going to drill down on the first and the last one. But I've identified five things. And there's there's a variety of things. There's nothing special about this list. It's just a list that I came up with. But this sense of understanding that God loves you and accepts you. That's a starting point for resilience. is understanding that there is an unconditional love and acceptance that God has for us as his children. One of the solutions for shame, you know, because we can always understand that we're loved and accepted by God, even when that's not the case among man. Forgiveness, God's solution for for guilt, so that when we do wrong, we have a way to resolve that, too. God has an answer for everything. It's amazing. He has a solution for everything. So his solution is forgiveness sustenance. What is it that allows us to strengthen the resilience factor of faith, spirituality? What are the things we do to strengthen our spirit? And some of us know some of these things. We might call them spiritual disciplines. There's things that we do, like maybe it's reading the scripture. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's listening to God. Maybe it's meditating on a passage of scripture. Maybe it's simply going out and taking a walk in the woods and Being still and letting God be God and admiring his creation. Whatever it is that gives you a sense of sustenance and strength increases your capacity to receive grace. God has more grace than we could ever accommodate. Way more grace than we could ever accommodate. And so how do we increase our grace space? How do we increase our capacity to receive all that God has for us? community is important just as relationships in the model that Southwick wrote about in his book. We know that spiritually community is incredibly helpful. What is it that people pour into our lives, their gifts? What is it that we pour into their lives? And theology, especially a theology of suffering, is important in resilience. And we're going to drill down into that one a little bit in a moment. There was a British psychiatrist by the name of Frank Lake who was watching missionaries in India. Uh, And he began to recognize how quickly these missionaries were coming home. They were burning out. They weren't being sustained on the mission field. So he got together with a Swiss theologian, Emil Brunner, and they started studying the life of Jesus, trying to understand how was it that Jesus was so resilient and how is it that these missionaries in India were not so resilient. And they developed this model called the cycle of grace. And it starts with the things that flow into us, the sense of acceptance and love that we are unconditionally accepted. The sense of sustenance which says that we go to God to get filled up with the kinds of energy and resources that we need. That our significance and our purpose and our meaning all comes from God. That our life is significant And that out of all of that flows the work that we do, flows the fruitfulness. The problem is most of us have it hardwired into us backwards, that we perform and we work hard so that we can be thought of as significant, so we can be accepted, right? And so you're on this treadmill of saying, I just got to keep working hard. I got to keep performing so someone will love me and I'll be accepted and my mom and dad will love me if I get straight A's or whatever it is that gears into that backwards loop of saying it's your performance that dictates your acceptance and your value versus it's simply the unconditional love and acceptance that frees you up to do good things, to be fruitful from a well that doesn't go dry. Theology and how we look at suffering is critically important. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when we look at suffering, I've written down five things that I think are critically important for our perspective when we go through hardship, challenges, adversity, illness, grieving, death, Whatever it is, first of all, is the love of God. Romans 8 38, 39 tells us that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And there's a whole laundry list of things there, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. Secondly, is the presence of God. God has promised us that He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, in Hebrews at the end of Matthew remember he said lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age he is always present the power of presence the presence of god no matter what we're going through understanding that experientially is critical to our resilience thirdly the comfort of god god is a god of comfort and second corinthians chapter 1 talks to us about how god administers comfort to us as a result the persecution we receive he's going to comfort us and with that comfort we're going to be able to comfort others. So just count on it. Count on it that when you're in the midst of adversity God's going to show up he's going to love you he's going to be present and he's going to comfort you. Fourthly is a sense that God is purposeful in all that he does. He does not waste your life. He does not waste his time. He does not waste your time. He is purposeful in all that he does. Romans 8:28 tells us that all things are working together for good to those who are loved by God, called according to his purpose, and the next verse is what that purpose is, that we might be conformed into the image of his son Jesus Christ. So the process of persecution or challenge or suffering or stress is one of the tools God uses in our maturing process. Now, most of us would say, can't we get stronger some other way? Can't we find an alternative pathway to maturity? And wouldn't that be splendid? I'd rather give you a talk about how having everything hunky dory can make you a mature spiritual giant. But I can't. That's not what the scripture teaches us. And lastly, the sovereignty of God that God is in authority over everything from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing outside of his purview. Proverbs reminds us that many are our plans, but God's purposes always prevail. It's the purpose of God that reigns supreme. I remember being on a mountaintop in Romania. We had just finished a conference for doctors. We had been teaching Romanian doctors about life, about joy, about happiness, about meaning, about purpose, and the kinds of things that some of what we're talking about here today. And after that was all over, I'm sitting on a mountaintop at this wonderful restaurant with our team that was there. And I'm across from one of my buddies and I said, uh, you know, I said, uh, would you tell me something about God that you've learned in your life that has just really changed your life or impacted your life? You know, we all have kind of spiritual mountaintop experiences where we've learned something. And he said, yeah, he, he was quick to volunteer. He said, yeah, I can tell you. He said, my dad's a hardy farmer, a hardy, strong man who at the age of 70 got a headache and was dead six months later. Never sick, a day in his life. So in six months, I watched my dad go from this hardy farmer to death. I quit my practice. I went home to be with my dad during that season of life. And my dad kept <laughs> reminding me of how good God was of how God was there, about how purposeful God was. He said, and I learned from my dad the power of this sovereign view of God that nothing escapes his purview, that his will allowed this and he was going to use it for good. And let me tell you, when I'm sitting across from this man now hearing this story and watching him as he was teaching these Romanian doctors, I said, he has learned that lesson. He has learned that lesson well. So I never forgot that story, and I have been so impacted by his testimony. So what are you going to do to get resilient? It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Just like the pathway to maturity is going to take you through adversity, resilience is developed through trial oftentimes. But there are some things that we can do proactively, based upon what you've already heard about resilience, that can help to prepare you. And especially if you're thinking about the foreign mission field, there are going to be an extra set of stressors that you need to prepare for. We can't prepare for everything. We can't. We can't even imagine some of the things that are going to happen to us if we, if we did. And if God told us about all that stuff, we'd probably be paralyzed because we'd be living in fear. But the reality is God doles out grace and administers grace as we need it, but at the same time, The resilience factors that we cultivate will help us. So how do we develop things like an optimistic perspective? How do we become fit physically, mentally, spiritually? How do we develop the kind of theology that allows us to respond to adversity? How do we establish relationships that are so critical to our success at our point of need? How do we minister to others? How do we show up in the lives of others so that we help them become resilient. So these things can be adjusted. So they don't just happen. Like many things in life, you can't just sit and watch things happen. We have to make decisions. We have to make effort. We have to take steps. We have to move in a direction that allows us to develop resilience. So I would encourage you to start, not tomorrow, not the next day, but today. Start thinking about it now. Think about questions such as these. What has God taught me? What has God taught me through past hardship? What have I learned? Why am I thankful for what I've gone through? I have a good friend whose daughter had cancer. Now his wife has cancer. And he is the most optimistic guy I've ever met. And a strong Christian. And my friends look at me and they say, how does he do that? How does he do that? And my answer is typically his, his faith, his faith perspective. But what has God taught me through hardship? Imagine something difficult that you might go through. I don't want you to be uh, you know, pathologic about this, but just think. There's things going to happen. People are going to die around you. Patients are going to die. Family members are going to die. You might lose your job. You might have a marital problem. You might have a parenting problem. You might have a conflict with someone on your team, I mean, these are common maladies, and so think through those things. Think about it. How will you respond, and how would greater resilience help me? So what areas of resilience do I most need to strengthen? You know, you all know yourselves. Each one is unique. No two of you alike. You all have different strengths. You all have different struggles. You know where you need to sort of bolster up those areas of deficiency, deficiency. But you also know where you can leverage your strengths. You'll get more out of leveraging your strengths than you will out of building your weaknesses. So leverage your strengths to the maximum and recognize where you need to manage your struggles or manage those opportunities for growth and begin to build in some of the practices. And you can have someone help you with that. If you're married, guess what? Your spouse will be very good at telling you how you can develop better. It is great. God has given you a mere and reflection, and she or he will be more than happy to tell you how you can improve. There's no problem doing that in marriage. Those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. So when are you going to start? What steps are you going to take? And how are you going to grow your resilience? So finally, number one, you're going to experience trouble. You're going to experience stress. You're going to experience trauma. You're going to experience grief. You're going to experience loss. You're going to experience sickness. Illness, conflict, trouble. So just count on it. Number two, going to the mission field, you just signed up for more of it. You signed up for a greater portion of all of that. Because now, you're out there trying to share the gospel and help people understand about Jesus. And I can tell you, you've got a more than worthy opponent who does not want that to happen. So you just signed up for extra duty, and extra need of resilience. So prepare, develop resilience, and become a healthy healer. Galen said the physician will hardly be thought very careful of the health of his patients if he neglects his own. Luke 4.23 says, Physician, heal yourself. Some of the reference books used for this talk, book Resilience by Southwick and Charney, talking about the ten factors, Trauma and Resilience, written by Frauke and Charlie Schaefer. Actually, they edited that book uh, they're two of our own, they're CMDA members, psychiatrists in North Carolina, uh, Resilience and Trauma, uh, The Cycle of Grace, which I referenced, Dr. Frank Lake, uh, the British psychiatrist, along with Dr. Emil Bruner, the Swiss uh, uh, theologian who got together and studied uh, missionaries in India and came up with this model called The Cycle of Grace. Or maybe just for fun reading, the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, this resilient guy who survived uh, his POW experience, in Japan. There are a multitude of references. I got plenty more if you're looking for more references, but these are just a few of them, some of the articles in some of the medical magazines that talk about burnout and resilience. And of course, uh, coaches can help you. Sometimes coaches, professional coaches, I'm not talking about your basketball coach, I'm not talking about your football coach, I'm not talking about your tennis coach, but I'm talking about your life coach. Sometimes coaches can help us as we work with satisfaction and burnout and transitions and leadership development and missionary training. So you can go to cmda.org slash coaching or contact me or others at coaching at cmda.org uh, So thank you very much for, uh, for your attention and uh, I'm open for any kinds of uh, comments or if you have stories to share about resilience that might encourage us or if you have questions about it. Joel? Uh, yeah. Well, some of the same tools for preventing burnout actually can help us to escape burnout. So our, our perspective in helping people to look at things differently. You know, how did we get burned out? Well, that's one thing. And how do we get out of burnout? That's another thing. But there's a continuum there. And there's a relationship of these kinds of factors that both prevent and help us bail out. So the same kinds of things you look at, okay, what things make us stronger? What things help us recover? Well, our theology helps us recover. Our relationships help us recover. Fitness helps us recover. Rest helps us recover. Having optimism and setting goals and having a future hope you know, you look at Hebrews 12:2. Jesus, who for the joy set before him was able to endure even the cross. So burnout being a cross or a hardship, you think, how is it that we can surround ourselves with people who can encourage us and give us some hope for the future? A lot of it depends on how we look at it. And we talked about managing burnout, some of the external things. We may have to make some changes in the environment we live in. We may have to take a sabbatical. We may have to do something like that I can tell you one thing that doesn't work is working more. You know, when working harder doesn't work. That's the title of a book by Dyke Drummond, Physician Burnout, When Working Harder Doesn't Work. So these kinds of things, and a coach can help with that or other people can help you to understand, okay, what are resources I have? What do I need to do with my environment? What do I need to do with me? And how do I recruit others and God to help me forward. So there's really a crossover. These are not just preventive measures. I think they're also management measures also and factors. So, so it, it
1: seems to me that on the, on the field, so much of excuse me, the burnout comes from guilt. Um, that the missionaries are feeling guilty about the situations that they're in. So many of my patients are dying. And some of it is because of my... Our group's incompetence, or maybe I made a mistake and my patients are dying. I'm denying care to my patients on the basis of money. which really rankles Americans in particular. Um, or my patients need me and my time so much more than they ever did in the States, and my family also needs me and my time so much more than in the States, and I can't handle all of this, and there's just such a such a load of guilt there. It that break. Not a few people in send them home. Um, so we're working on trying to work into those sorts of things and, and do preventive things with them. Do you know of any resources that work specifically on that sort of a thing from the spiritual side, from the guilt side, to help people prepare uh, to go to the field and those stresses that they're likely to encounter there, almost guaranteed to encounter
0: there? Well, you know, there's, if there was some simple, straightforward answer, we'd all be embracing it, right? But these are... You know deep things and how they have to do a lot of with how do we look at our lives and what our expectations are of our performance and just like that grace cycle demonstrated that if we're performance driven driven you're always going to be guilt-laden or almost always why I didn't see one more patient oh that patient died oh you know I I didn't see a hundred conversions and I sent back a letter to my mission organization and the gospel's not going forth or you know but but how do we measure our performance is so important having realistic expectations. And I think a lot of times people have an expectation that's imposed upon them. Okay, It's not something they embrace necessarily, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's something we do to ourselves. We have a certain expectation of performance. Sometimes it's someone else like our mission agency or our team leader or a colleague or even a spouse. Sometimes we'll put an expectation. So, So much of it gets to getting to the core of what is realistic expectation. I mean, I think of Dan Fountain, and many of you have heard Dan speak before, but that sense of, he says, there's always another appendectomy walking in the door. There's always somebody else that's got a critical medical problem. This is is never-ending. So what did he do? He started developing a community health program because he felt like there was a better investment of time and energy and performance to do just that, so... I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm just saying that the answer is unique to the individual and the team that's there of having realistic expectations and understanding what's God's perspective of this. What is God expecting of you? What is God expecting of your teammates? What is God expecting of your family time? Setting healthy boundaries, understanding, you know, because you can't do it all. I don't care if you're on the mission field or southeastern Kentucky. I mean, I'm running an ER I'm on call 24-7, I'm delivering babies, I'm doing my own C-sections, I'm doing my own anesthesia. I mean, I was going crazy, and it took several people coming to visit me to say, you know, your marriage is not doing so good, you know, your daughter who's not doing so good, you know, you're going to have to make some changes. You can't be a hero to all of these people in southeastern Kentucky and be a failure at home or in your church or in your life, so... It's a deep problem, but coaches can help you think through that because it takes time, it creates space to really delve into what's the root here and how do we then take steps forward without guilt. And God has the answer for guilt and shame, right? This, this love and acceptance is not based on performance. And when we do do wrong, there's an answer there too because sometimes it is our own fault and we do need God's forgiveness. Others...
1: Relationship between guilt and loss. I mean, I think some a burnout is, or maybe looks like guilt, but it may be loss. you know, so there's the added factor of grief in there. That it, what do you do with that? As a, I mean, it's not just guilt, but it is a, a grieving process. At all.
0: I think, so, uh, I I think uh, you know you're right. These things weigh heavy. They weigh heavy on us and they lead to lead to trouble and some of us can and part of the challenge I think is that we don't create enough space to deal with these things in our lives. You know. Uh, residency programs now are creating space to debrief better about maybe it's a death in the ICU or a death in the ER or whatever, you know. But when, back in the day, you know, we just went to the next patient. You stuffed. Your emotions. You stuffed your experiences. You didn't talk about it. You didn't unveil it. So I got to the point where I was pretty emotionless. I mean, you know, lately I've been experiencing a few more emotions, and my wife says, "I'm not sure I like this." You know, <laughs> that you're expressing your emotions. You know, and so, so finding a way to get in a safe environment to debrief. There are things called Belint groups that help doctors and others discuss patient relationships and and feelings and emotions and and so yeah, I think it's I think we having behavioral health people, having coaches, having people come on board that help us, but we need to create space to process that because otherwise it will overwhelm us, especially if we don't address it. Ultimately, these things come back. You know, you can run, but you cannot hide. They're going to find you out. This boss, this grief, this burden that you're carrying without talking to someone about it, it's it's going to catch up to you. So we are, we are frail human beings.
2: I think, Steve, I think it behooves us as mission leaders to, on, on fields where we have multiple missionaries, uh, organizations, even in practices, I think it's good for us. You know, we have designated, we to talk about a designated driver when, when people are under influence and you have someone who's sober who takes care of them. It seems that we all need, whether it's a, it's a coach you know, in a coaching environment, but in a mission hospital where I've been for a couple decades, uh, and as a medical director, it was upon me, uh, I, I tend to be someone who had a lot of resilience, it was upon me to notice someone was getting very close to the line in terms of burnout, depression, um, and was not resilient. And the onus falls upon leadership to call the foul, say time out. You've got to take a break, and I don't think, I'll do whatever it takes as your leader, your supervisor, to pull you off the line, to give you a break, and that's how we can can develop resilience. We don't push people over the line. We let them. We, we realize they're getting close, and we stop. Um, now, I realize that uh, in a lot of our scenarios, it's just it's tough. We're understaffed. I mean, Jim was talking about it at Trigoria. We're understaffed, but I think it, it's critical um, that as medical staff, we have somebody who calls the foul. And says it's
0: time to stop. You know, I think, uh, I think as part of that, you know, empathy and awareness of others is a, is a key leadership skill. And doctors aren't usually very good at it, really. But at the same time, a good leader is also going to create that environment where the person feels very, very safe in coming to you, too. That even if you don't recognize it, because we can't, as leaders, recognize everything that's going on, we're going to miss stuff, all right? I mean, we're going to miss stuff on our watch, right? But creating the kind of environment that says, you know what, and being honest, I'm going to miss stuff. And I would tell my staff, I'm going to miss stuff. You've got to know that if you come to me, it's safe, it's confidential, and I'll do everything in my power to make help you be healthy. You know, I care about you. You think of our loving Father, and you think of what do we want to do when things aren't going well? Sometimes we want to run away from Him, don't we? And yet he's the safest place to go. He's the safest place to go. And he says, you know, I love you so much that even if you've done wrong, even if you're guilty, even if you should have done something different, don't run the other way. Run toward me. And good leaders will do that. They create a culture that says, come, come, come. I'm not critical. I'm a learner. We're learning together. We're in it together. So, yeah, we got to we got to create that safe place. And if we can recognize it, wow. <laughs> that's incredibly helpful too. So, good. Yeah, leadership's crucial. We just got there. All right. That means supper is coming. All right. Enjoy your enjoy your supper.